got Derek here with me with the Jesus Name News Podcast. We are excited to have you here this week as we start our series on holy ambition, talking about the life and the adventures of Nehemiah. So we'll be with you in about 60 seconds after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Jesus Name News Podcast. Listen, if you like what you're hearing, If you want to continue getting this great content and you want to help support us, consider going to patreon.com slash news. You won't be sorry that you did. Thank you for listening. The king is dead and the crown prince with him, having been killed by one of their own chief ministers and bodyguards, one of the great Judas's and Benedict Arnold's of history, Artabanus, who would serve as regent of Persia for a short time. Soon a benevolent Gentile figure of the Bible and younger son of Xerxes I rose to power. His name, Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes took the throne in 465 BC, shortly after he would uncover the sinister plot of Artabanus and execute Artabanus in hand-to-hand combat Another account has Artaxerxes, of course, killing his brother to attain power, but Artaxerxes' grandfather was Darius the Great, and he would set up a system successful enough for his son and grandson to successfully govern the empire. And most of Artaxerxes' reign was problem-free, minus the few rebellions that sprang up, and Artaxerxes is also considered a mostly fair and just king, unlike the previous empire over the Jews, the Persians allowed the subjugated peoples to maintain their own religion and customs and traditions, and this helped ease some of the tension within the empire. Soon, Ezra the scribe would be tapped to act as a court official for the Jews, and later Ezra would be sent back with around 1,500 other Jews to complete the spiritual restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. At this point, many Jews had already returned to Judah, But then came a man by the name of Nehemiah in the year 445 BC. The cupbearer to the king, one of the most trusted positions as assassinations were common in Persia, Nehemiah would literally lay his life on the line for the king. It is Nehemiah's story, his vision, his accomplishments, his reforms, and his regrets that we want to talk about with holy ambition. Artaxerxes, his character, we kind of need to understand that in order to understand Nehemiah. Artaxerxes proved to be a cunning statesman. Uh, His father's greatest enemy, uh, Themistocles, had come to actually him Uh, seeking to help Artaxerxes destroy the city of Athens. Uh, Though Themistocles would die, either by his own hand or by natural causes, he would die before he could ever fulfill that promise. Uh, But later, Artaxerxes would successfully offer and negotiate peace between the Greeks and Persians, though there was a measure of distrust between both empires. I mean, even the Greeks would call him a studious and gentle man. I mean, how many enemies do you know that's going to call 
their enemy a studious and gentle man. He is mostly known through his role in Ezra and Nehemiah, which were, by the way, originally one book, not two. And Artaxerxes perhaps influ was influenced by the story of Esther. Uh, and he gave a great deal because of that. He gave a great deal of autonomy to the Jews. Uh, now, Ezra was a priest and scribe at Susa, which was one of Artaxerxes' favorite cities, uh, along with a significant number of Jewish families. To Ezra gets sent to Jerusalem with, along with those families to standardize the law of Moses, and he is said to have consolidated and edited the Mosaic law during this time, which would then regulate the lives of the Jews in the region. And he would also order the completion of the second Jewish temple, which was said to be on a grander scale than the Temple of Solomon. Okay, so just, just clarifying a few things. So historically speaking, Artaxerxes' father was the one that attacked Greece. Like the Battle yes. of Thermopylae and stuff? Okay. Um, other question is... So the law being compiled here, this is the earliest point that we really have any evidence of any of these writings. Uh, of which writings? Like, so, like, the law, when we say the law, we mean, like, the first five books of Moses? I wouldn't say that it's the first time that you see them written. I would say it's the first time you see them redacted, edited, and compiled. So, like, I guess what I'm saying is more it's – this is the point that what we have today is – the version we have today is – this is the point that we can point to that for sure it was here. But when we go further back than that, we're not entirely certain that it was in the same format that it is now. Well, you have to understand the way in which the law and – uh, most of Genesis was told was oral tradition, not written. And Moses likely wrote down a lot of it. Um, and then Ezra started that process of redaction and editing and comp compilation and such. And then further, once you get into uh, the Hellenistic period of under Alexander the Great, uh, that's where you see the Septuagint appearing, you see, you know, you, you, you start seeing Greek works uh, and Greek redaction of the Old Testament, you know, what we would call the Old Testament. Um, so you, you, you don't really, before Ezra, we don't, it was, it was codified, but in the sense that it was more of an agreement. Okay. Because I know really, in, um, I think, we'll, I mean, we'll get to it. I know in, I believe it's in Nehemiah, they find the law and they realize they're not doing parts of it. No. Uh, well, that happens under Josiah. Um, or, oh, yeah. That, or that might, that could be. Yeah. It's, or it's that happens under Josiah. Um, it, it's, but it, it kind of sort of happens here as well. Uh, not necessarily finding the law. But, you know, that again, the law was obviously present in written form 
before Ezra. But then we start seeing the compilation of the Pentateuch, you know, editing, redaction. And so Ezra's kind of taking what was already there and just kind of making it fit together, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, in that process of compilation, they would get a more complete understanding of things. It's kind of like when we look when we look at the Bible today, you know, we can say this word appears 837 times in the Bible and it right. is translated in English to these seven different words and we can tell you exactly how many times it is and it increases our understanding of what it is and our ability ability to like make lists out of the Bible and stuff and in the same way in I mean in a similar way but obviously at a lesser level them having the ability to compile and be at peace in this time frame allowed them to codify these things and be more consistent and thorough in what they talked of it, I guess. Yeah, so this was the first time, you know, you had that period under David and Saul and then David, or in Solomon, and then Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes the throne and then Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom in between Israel and Judah Southern Kingdom, Northern Kingdom. And, you know, that, there was a lot of, like, really... And the Northern Kingdom is Israel, and the Southern Kingdom is Judah. Uh, Judah being reigned by the, the lineage of David. And, you know, that... That, uh, that moment, once you we think of... We think of most of that time as peaceful, but really Israel was at war except for under Solomon. Israel was at war a lot of the time under David, Saul, the judges. So there wasn't a whole lot of time to do all this codifying and all that. And then Judah falls to Babylon. And so in their exiled, the, the smartest and best are exiled. And... So you, you still, you have prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but you're still having that, we don't have the time or the care to really do this. But somehow in Babylon, they created a system that really worked for them, and they were able to maintain cultural integrity as an ethnic group, uh, which is really rare, given the how much time they were there. But... Um, then when they come back. That way, and, it's kind of interesting in that if they actually would have obeyed what God told them to do and cleared they out. Have had these problems. They wouldn't have had these problems and they would have done all this stuff in the book <clears> of Judges, <laughs> if not in the book of Joshua. But instead, they went, well, we kind of like a few of these groups of people, so let's kind of let them hang around a bit. Yeah, and. Maybe instead of talking about Babylon as one of the great empires, we're talking about, you know, Israel. But, you know, that, that being said, underneath, you know, uh, Cyrus, once he takes over uh, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Peace. It was like kind of the first time that the Israelites had had peace in a while, and even then, peace was peace is kind of, eh. Uh, 
so you still end up with like this is the first real time that they have the ability to as an ethnic group and as a group of people start thinking about who they are um and, and that's weird to think about because you have the law, you have Moses, you have all that, but you got to understand the way culture works. We're yeah. talking, we're talking maybe, a, well, I'm trying to think of timeline and numbers. A thousand years, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, it's I'm like imagine. a thousand years from them leaving Egypt to this. And the other interesting thing about it is that really, you know, they have the 12 tribes plus like, four or five or whatever that leave Egypt, right? Yep. And then they all come to the promised land and they spread out and they do all of that. But really, by the time they get to Babylon and they actually codify all of this and solidify, they're really only down to like, what, two tribes, maybe three, if you include the Levites. If you want to be realistic, yeah. Like... By the time they actually get to this point, they've whittled down from, you know, 12 to two and a half-ish. Yeah. If you and, and be... that's, just, that's really interesting about it is that, like, even what we talk about as Israel when we talk about all of this, because in most of the Bible's time frame, they were, you know, 12 tribes and there was all of this, but really... The people who got us what we know of it, it almost all comes from a smaller subgroup of it. Yeah. And once you start talking about, you know, these, some of Nehemiah's uh, uh, contemporaries come to him and tell him about the state of Jerusalem and tell him about the walls. So he. He weeps, he mourns, you know, all that. And Artaxerxes is the one that eventually grants Nehemiah's request, right? Uh, and historically, generally Artaxerxes is treated kindly. I mean, there's very few times in history where I can say that. And it's, <laughs> it's something that's rarely seen. However, if we really want to take a look at the province of Judah... It's not all that well. And, you know, going... So the province of Judah was called Yehud under the Persians and actually encompassed far less land than the original kingdom of Judah itself. Uh, Judah was largely agricultural. Persian rule allowed for a great deal of local autonomy. There was a large degree of tolerance in the empire as long as you served them. Uh, these same policies would make the newly built second temple an economic powerhouse for Judah and give rise to the priestly oversight in Jerusalem. Yeah, and I just think of how interesting it is how these types of events set up the world in which Jesus would be crucified in. And, you know, we're taking, we're talking an easy 440, you know, 500 years before the birth of Jesus. And I've always said that the backdrop of Jesus' life is, uh, is a world that's filled with some of the greatest pieces of history you'll ever read about. I mean, just 70 to 80 years prior, 
to Jesus' birth, you've got Cleopatra, Mark Antony, and Julius Caesar setting up the Roman Empire that Jesus lived under. You know, here we see the roles, the the uh, priestly oversight that Jesus would live under beginning. Yeah, that's one of the things that I always found interesting. Like, when you look at it, it's like history has this natural progression that's like the the apex of it somehow is when jesus was alive yeah a, a of, lot like, of like the entire all of history reaches its apex when christ is there and then it just drops off a cliff and now you know, all of a sudden, like we've we've gone back up, and maybe maybe we're higher now on some level. You could argue, but like it's just interesting how there's that that clear progression through all of these empires, through all of the stuff that happened in history, and there's this high point of that perfect moment that all of this built to, that made a way for a savior to be born for the whole world. Yeah. That's that's something that I, I, as a historian, someone that not only teaches history, but I study it all throughout colleges, all throughout college, enough to have like a second major. So the what I find most interesting, though, is the temple during this time. The temple employed laborers, priests, it set up shops and merchants. Uh, the temple tats would drive this economic machine that the temple was becoming and keep it well-funded and also much desired by foreign invaders. So, but as well as the temple, the priest in Jerusalem were doing or may have been doing during that time, the common person was not as lucky. So here's a few of the problems that we see among the common person. The wealthy failed in their social responsibilities to provide adequate support for the small landowner, the tenant farmer, and day worker. Owners of small far farms often faced uh, uh, the necessity of mortgaging and even selling their home and their farm. Uh, the wealthy Jews required these working poor to pay high interest rates who at times even had to sell their children into slavery in order to exist, which is said in Nehemiah 5, uh, 2 through 5. The additional Persian taxation, then when you add that to the local poverty itself, often resulted in breaking down of households. Uh, then you have vast accumulation of wealth especially if you're in the Persian court, uh, but also among the local satrapsies, uh, which is kind of like kings. So uh, if you don't know the, the, the uh, Persian kings were called king of kings. I was going to ask, I was like, I was looking up some of these and I was like, wait, the Persian empire called their kings, the king of kings. And then I realized when I looked into it a little deeper that king of kings was a common thing that they called the rulers of empires in that time frame and i found it interesting that it also mentioned that in in israel and judaism 
the way that they said it was actually king of king of kings in Hebrew. Recognizing the authority of God, obviously. Yeah, that was how they referred to God. We just say king of kings because we don't have the scope of, you know, these earthly kings calling themselves the king of kings. You know, America doesn't have the president of presidents. Yeah. So we don't need to add that third layer to it to get the effect that it's that the he, the Hebrews were going for. Well, and you know, Nehemiah's eventual reform, though, he he would attempt to confront these injustices. And he required that lands be returned to the original owners who had been forced to sell them and that large debts be canceled. But this was even very difficult for Nehemiah to do. I mean, Ezra, when he came back, he realized that the Jews were intermarrying, and he was like, all those marriages, y'all should divorce. And only a few of them did. So, It's interesting is that when you describe that, I very much feel like you're describing a situation that sounds very familiar to me. Listen, I... Well, it, but what I, I mean, like, it... it the thing is, is that it's interesting to me because the thing is, is that the Bible is very, very clear that the those who are wealthy and those who are well off have a responsibility to the entirety of society and culture to not take advantage of that and enrich themselves at the hurt of other people. Well, I mean, even the law makes it, uh, I think... Uh, I, I think it is. Um, the law says, you know, not to put interest on loans owed to you by Jews. If you're a Jew, yeah. lending up. So they're obviously yeah. breaking that. But well, and then there's the whole, like, year of Jubilee and returning land to their family owners every so often and all of that kind of stuff. Which, by the way, is what got them in trouble with Babylon, a lot of people believe that the reason Babylon came in and took them over is because all that was being ignored. And they're doing the same thing under the Persian Empire. Sometimes you just don't learn. So, I mean, let's be real. The whole Old Testament is just them never, ever, ever learning. Yeah. And then you got the New Testament where they still didn't learn. <laughs> so, uh, And now we have but, modern day where we still haven't learned. Yeah, true. So. Persian role of Judah, though, uh, much like Nehemiah's role as governor, this was pretty much the norm. Uh, initially, the great kings of Persia allowed these Jewish governors to be descendants of David. Uh, and that was a common practice for the Persians to appoint governors based on a her hereditary line of royalty, whether it was previously destroyed or currently in place at that moment of conquest. Which, by the way, the line of David at that point had been destroyed uh, and taken out of power. Uh, and they restored that. Xerxes I, I believe, Darius maybe even, uh, restored that. Uh, Persia would restore that line briefly. Uh, the first one being Shesh, Shesh, sorry, Shesh Bazar, the governor of uh, Judah appointed by Cyrus in 538. You can definitely uh, say all these names in this next paragraph. Yeah. Uh, he was. He would be the the first one. Uh, and he actually led that first group of exiles back to Judah, uh, as was his successor and nephew, Zerubbabel, 
Uh, Zerubbabel in turn was succeeded by his second son and then by his son-in-law, all of them being of, you know, Davidic origin. Uh, but that would end around 500. So you have 38 years. However, as was common in Persia, uh, you know, whether you were in Judah or in Egypt or, you know, well, not Egypt, but, or, you know, in the Arabian Peninsula, whether you were there or whatever, usually it was allowed to have someone over them that was of the same ethnicity. So these governors were still Jewish. And when that ended, guess whose role increased? The high priest. And Judah essentially became a theocracy under the governorship of a hereditary line of high priests. The role of governor can be summed up in this. So this is what the governor was supposed to do. Maintain order and control of the province, backed by either a militia or a trained regiment, and ensure tribute was paid to the larger empire. How long was the high priest essentially a hereditary line that governed? Do we know? I mean, I would say up until probably the Greeks, which is three, you know, end of the fourth century BC or, you know, beginning of the fourth century BC, but, or maybe not the mid, but the, 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 and then you see from there Rome taking over from Greece and, you know, indeed, but even in the Bible, you say, you look at the way Caiaphas threw his power around. Even Pilate was afraid of Caiaphas. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't. Caiaphas was just a religious leader, but at the same time, he still had some power. So, you know. You could argue that he they always did, uh, at least unofficially. And, you know, when you... Again, I just think about this in the context of setting up the world that Jesus was going to be crucified in. It's just amazing. I mean, I, to me, like, when you ignore all this history and you just kind of, like, look at... Like, and you just kind of look at the Bible as a spiritual thing which it is but it's also a historical thing and when you dig into that history that's in, in behind it there's this beautiful story being laid out it's interesting i i talked to my sunday school class today um we're supposed we're technically supposed to talk about the plan of salvation this month in four lessons the first one was on belief and then repentance baptism in jesus name and filling of the holy ghost well Last week was belief. I gave them kind of a homework assignment. None of them did it. We got back this week and I started asking them about belief a little, right? To like review last week. And they just, like, they had nothing. And so we started talking about why we believe and what tells us that. And we talked about what we've seen that lets us know what we believe, what we feel, what we felt that lets us know what we believe and what we know. And when I asked them, like, what do you know that can confirm that what we believe is true? It's interesting that they, a lot of the feedback I got from them was like flood stuff and like all the creation science stuff. 
And I tried to like steer them away from that a little bit just because there's so much misinformation mixed into that. Yeah. Um, and when there's any misinformation mixed in, it's not a good place to solidify your beliefs in. But it's interesting to me that like we immediately start talking about this and it's like like a really solid place to find footing of faith is in a lot of the history in and around the exile and in the lead up to Jesus because there's so much of it that is so well documented and it's interesting that like it's like you said, it's almost like the entire world was prepping for something to happen in that moment. Yeah. And that something was Jesus. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and it just, it made me think of that. Cause like that it's, it's, it's so true when we look at this stuff and, you know, we've talked about, you know, we've, talk briefly about other things around this time frame and all of it points you know and, and some of it was written you know it was written a few hundred to you know you know i would say like what three to seven hundred years before jesus and all of it is pointing forward and it's talking prophetically about that time frame and and it's all building and it's so accurate in both what it says looking forward and what it says looking back you know leading up to that and they didn't know about it when they wrote it that they were building up to that thing necessarily and right. so i just no you're you're right and however you would think that based on the restoration of the davidic line and the near total autonomy uh that the jews would settle down right <laughs> well sorry <laughs> so as we see in the book of Ezra, Yahweh is the God of the Jews. He's a national God that's similar to the surrounding nations having their own God. But there's a shift beginning to happen. And this shift uh, is recurring mightily during this time. And Yahweh, in that Yahweh is becoming the only God that should be followed. And it's also during this time that, again, that compilation, that redaction, and canonization of the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy, and historical literature all takes place. And this shift doesn't go without bumps. So within Judah, there are groups all struggling for social power and religious power. And you've got, and I'm going to list off a few groups and explain them while I'm talking. So... The first couple of groups you got are the Zedekite uh, priesthood and the appointed local officials. Again, that sounds like the Roman Empire time that Jesus lived in. So the Zedekite priesthood and the appointed officials were both loyal to the Persians. Again, just setting up. I just think of this pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, then you have the scribes like Ezra who are working within that local province and doing some uh, not only spiritual reforms, but social reforms. And then you've got the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and parts of, even parts of Malachi uh, that sought to call out corruption and social issues and religious issues and even the empire's issues. And then you have this 
fringe group of people called the Apocalyptic Seers. And it's within this time period that we start seeing the apocalyptic literature that tells of the suffering under the Persians and looks to a future that the kingdom of Israel would be divinely given independence. So, okay, so I know that the book of Revelation would fall under this, this type of literature, right? Yeah. It ends up in this vein. Obviously, then John is not one of these apocalyptic seers in the time of Nehemiah. But I guess what I'm saying is that, like, is Ezekiel considered in this same kind of thing? Because I know these kind of apocalypse, they're a very Greek thing too, right? I would say Ezekiel start kind of starts that form foundation. Like, you know, Isaiah starts it, Ezekiel... Jeremiah all kind of start it. Okay. Uh, and obviously they you know they were seeing like divinely given independence, but they didn't realize that it was a spiritual independence, not a a you know physical yeah. one. But does that form of apocalyptic methodology appear in other cultures? That I would have to study out a little bit more, I'm not sure. Okay, because um, it's just, it's very specific, and it's strange because, because I know, like, um, Enoch is another apocalyptic kind of thing, and the way that it describes things, it's often... Which, by the way, Enoch really starts taking off, the first part of Enoch starts taking off during this time, too. Yeah, and, and they all kind of follow that pattern of, and, and it often is misunderstood, like, when we read the book of Revelation a lot of it is often assumed to still be in the future from even right now. Right? And there's portions... Sure it wasn't. And some of it is. I'm not saying none of it is, just to be clear. Like, I am not saying the whole book of Revelation has already happened. But what no. I'm saying is, is that there's messages in it that are coded messages for the time frame that they're in. And so this group kind of built on the foundation of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah... And just kind of took it that extra step. Almost, I, I guess, I'm going to get us in trouble again. Almost like the people nowadays who kind of are just all about the end of the world. Yeah, uh, and they use it as fear-mongering. Which, these are, it's not what these apocalyptic seers were doing. But now we've turned it into fear-mongering and, you know, trying to decode these secret messages that are within these, you know, books and yeah, workouts. but they were giving the secret messages. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like, as as much as we're kind of the the end result of what that is, because I mean, when you're writing secret messages, you're kind of hoping people interpret yeah. them wildly. We were kind of hoping that they get it. Yeah. Well, because yeah, because I mean, there's when you're writing things like that, there's only really, there's only really a couple ways they can be taken. Either one, it's of God and there's a good particular singular message that's meant by it. Or two, it's not. And you're doing one of two things. You're either trolling or the ancient form of trolling where you're just sowing chaos and you don't really care how people take it. 
or B, you're trying to ferment specific things with what you write. Yeah, no, that, yeah. and that's and that's kind of what's happening. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting, you know, just interesting that obviously, that, like, it, it's still scriptural. It's still a lot of it's still doctrine based, and like Malachi is calling out the 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 injustices of yeah. you know social the social woes, but. I guess religion. I just find the apocalyptic form itself interesting. Like, how... What makes you decide to, like, write about the end of the world as coded messages about the world that's around you as, like, hey, let's do this. Like, that just seems <laughs> odd to me. I mean, obviously, divine inspiration, but... Well, for the ones that are divinely inspired, yes. Yeah. But I'm more saying... For the ones that are divinely inspired, not like... <laughs> most of Enoch, <laughs> but yeah, uh, but so let's let's uh talk talk about once you get outside of that the province of Judah. Yeah, you even got Jews practicing polytheism. Like that's how wild it gets. Like there is there are whole other Jewish temples in like Egypt. Like and that temple gets burned down, and then the official temple becomes Jerusalem, but. Beyond that, like that, that's how diversified the Jews are to this point. And that Zedekite priesthood and the local administrators, they seem to be at the top because they were backed by the Persians. And as long as they remain loyal, again, interesting that we see religious leaders adopting fealty to an empire to maintain their control, which was also present in Jesus' time. You know, the 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 chronicle the chronicler uh, indicates that the official and priestly leaders after Haggai and Zechariah apparently gave allegiance to the Persians by by being content to accept foreign rule in exchange for economic, social, and political reward. Opposition to this came from the undercurrent of some revolutionary po- prophets and apocalyptic seers. And eventually, Ezra the scribe is sent to codify the law and enact social and religious reforms. And anything that's not in that priestly document or in Ezra's interpretation of the law is to be exterminated and burned. And under both Ezra and Nehemiah, the only groups that were truly heirs to Israel were the exiles and their descendants. Because the people that were living in Israel were intermarrying. And... This was supposed to provide internal stability to Judah and present a people who were easily ruled. So, I find it interesting. So, again, going on some of that end time leg leg stuff, like, I remember all these people saying, like, when the book of Revelation says that there'll be 12, there'll be a certain number of people from all the tribes of Israel, and... I've heard so many modern teachers take it literally that all of a sudden in the last days in the modern world, we're going to discover all these people that are in the specific tribes that are going to number those exactly, right? That all turn to Jesus. And it's just interesting is that in the world that those things were written in, we have the Jews, the ones that actually 
put together most of the old, what we call the Old Testament and the Talmud and the other things that the Jews followed in the days of Jesus that John would have known of, they're explicitly saying that those tribes are gone forever. No one's left. We're not looking for them to come back, and in fact, it's impossible for them to ever come back. They're gone. In some ways, yeah. Uh, um, but again, Ezra and Nehemiah, I believe, are basing theirs off of the intermarrying situation. I'm not sure who or how many tribes were in exile. I would assume well, yeah. you, but... It's, you know I guess that. it's just interesting to me that when we look at the historical context of these things, it ends up being, it shines light on things. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. It, it clarifies things that, that, that feels so separate from what this actually is, but yet at the same time, like it's all so interrelated. Yeah. And you know, what Ezra and Nehemiah did, I believe was very noble. Like they, yeah. you know, trying to do, trying to like rebuild Jerusalem, get it back to where it was. And that's all great. And I'm, I'm happy they did it. Like, I, don't get me wrong. But I do think it's odd how Artaxerxes, like any great ruler can turn this into something that's going to work for them. But what it really ended up doing was creating people who still rejected that foreign influence because Ezra rejected that foreign influence of Persia. He was like, listen, just le leave us alone. Let us do our thing. Stop interfering. And that's why he told all these men to divorce those women. And Nehemiah pretty much does this. They're, re they're called reactionaries. They're saying, look, leave us alone. We don't want to fight you. We just want to be left alone. That's basically what they're saying. And what we end up with, though, is a Judah that is filled with fairly poor people, crushed under economic inequality, that allowed the wealthy to exercise a great deal of power over the poor, and then plus Persian taxes added onto financial stress and contributed to social inequality where households would fall apart. So, and I know that I'm applying probably modern terms to ancient problems, but that's what it was by definition. Mm -hmm. The poor were being taken advantage of. The families couldn't stay together. What do you call those things, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then you got... Nehemiah wants to come in and he wants to fix these issues. And in many ways, Jerusalem's walls being in ruin and its gates burns reflects the spiritual, social, political, and economic state of the average Jew. Yeah. So in the same way that these ancient walls were, would protect a city from foreign invasion and allow for defense, the average Jews were spiritually and physically open for attack and unable to maintain any level of stability. You know, intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews is rampant, which Ezra tries to address. Working on the Sabbath was common, which, you know, Nehemiah tries to address. The wealthy abuse the poor, both things that Nehemiah would try to deal with. The temple was not being maintained as it should, which Malachi writes about and Nehemiah calls out. So, 
the one institution that is supposed to guide them spiritually was, again, after Zechariah and Hagar, the one thing that was supposed to, to guide them spiritually was content to serve a crushing foreign power as long as they maintained power and status. And, you know, because of that position and because of, you know, their access to what the National Bank of the Temple had become, that made them quite influential and wealthy. Again, we're laying a foundation for the priesthood that Jesus would live under. So in the time of Nehemiah, we encounter people who are not being led properly, spiritually, culturally, or politically, and they are right from attack from foreign power, both spiritually and, physic and physically and politically. So Nehemiah's response to hearing the state of Jerusalem is weeping and sadness. And it's in this state that Artaxerxes asks Nehemiah, what's wrong? And Nehemiah petitions the king to send him to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Not only that, but he would provide the materials and passage. And Artaxerxes grants these requests, and it seems at last that Jerusalem will have, will, will, will finally return to that prominence that it once was. Right? And the restoration the, of the Jews spiritually and politically will be restored and and Nehemiah along this journey encounters some fierce resistance incredible setbacks and despair and anger over the people's spiritual state and the book of Nehemiah lays a foundation for the state of affairs again during Jesus's time but it also shows us how to how to confront those who want to see the plan of God fail and the dangers of not advocating for the voiceless, poor, and, and also the dangers of neglecting our spiritual health. And I just want to read briefly from Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah, speaking to the people, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words, that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. What Nehemiah had was a holy ambition. What he attempted to instill in the people of Jerusalem was a holy ambition. And that's the best kind of ambition, obviously. But more than that, when you're talking about rising up for the people who can't defend themselves and you're talking about confronting the 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 spiritual woes of people and you're talking about you know people who want to see the plan of god fail and come against the power of god you're talking about you're when you talk about someone that wants to come against that and rise up against it that's a holy ambition And I, I can't wait to get into Nehemiah. It's one of my favorite books, and it's one of my favorite time periods. But I want to, I want to really dive into this and show us. You know, we need to be more aware, not only of ourselves in our spiritual state, but of our neighbor.
in their spiritual state and you know the political and economic and you know all those things that come with that yeah i want to talk about simply just trying to be a voice for the voiceless hope for the hopeless trying to be an example and a light and nehemiah really does that pretty well but at the very end we'll talk about how he has some despair and how trying sometimes is all you can do and I can't wait I'll, hopefully you guys will join us every week uh, it's it's going to be awesome I'm excited too so I, I'm I'm looking forward to where this is going to go it, it sounds very very timely for the world that we live in when we look around and so be with us every Wednesday at our usual time wherever you get your podcasts